Gladys, Sporties, dear listeners, welcome back to the fourth episode of Reflective Contemplations, my podcast brought to you by yorktreeto.com. Now this time, I want to introduce to you three great books. There are books who, which caught my eye just a couple of months ago. They're all great reads, they're provocative, and they get you thinking. And that's after all what my blog and this podcast is going to be about. So first of all, I'm going to introduce to you the book, The Cuddling of the American Mind by Greg Lukianov and Jonathan Hyde, which deals with the question of free speech on campuses, which asks whether we raise a generation of youngsters who are not necessarily susceptible anymore to political debate and to what extent social media contributes, obviously, amongst other things, to a ever strongly polarized society. By the way, they are not the only ones raising that subject. Most recently, there have been quite a few other books around dealing with the same subject. But this one, or in this book, the psychological approach is particularly worthwhile and very interesting indeed. In the second segment, I'm going to talk about a great Italian writer. Now, his name is Edoardo Albinati. Uh, he has written a book most recently, which stirred up quite a bit of controversy in Italy and abroad. And that book is a semi-autobiographical uh, account of his own upbringing and a crime, or takes us back as readers to a crime which occurred in Italy's 1970s. And he's not just criticizing his own Catholic upbringing, but he's also criticizing extremely well the Italian, well, let's call it petty bourgeoisie. And obviously, as you can imagine, dear listener, that's music to my ears. And lastly, I'm going to talk about a subject which is particularly dear to me, and that is surveillance capitalism and a great insightful book written by Shoshana Zuboff. Now, these are the topics for this podcast. When I come back, we're going to go into the cuddled American mind. What doesn't kill us makes us, well, what? Less hard. Greg Lukianov and Jonathan Hyde, the both authors of the book we are talking about right now, they disagree with that. But they observe that this is exactly what's happening on university campuses. That's a generation of people, of teenagers, of young students who, well, let's say, shy away from political debate. They are not used to the rough and tumble of democracy. They have a pretty narrowly defined worldview, a sort of black and white thinking in terms of what is right, what is wrong, not a lot of gray in between. That's what they believe and they have written an essay on that question in 2015. And now they've built on that in a very intriguing, very interesting book, The Cuddling of the American Mind. And that's a book I'm currently making my way through. And that's a book that is published as an audiobook on iTunes and Audible as well. And I think it's worth your time. I think it's extraordinarily interesting. Now, before I talk about the book itself, I want to talk about well, I want to give you a bit of anecdotal evidence because I did get in touch, in contact 
with that sort of development, I could observe it up close to some degree, not entirely, I must admit, but uh, I noticed something really odd going on even in the year 2000. And that's where I would slightly disagree with uh, Lukianov and Hyde. I think the trend was even there, predating social media quite some time. Um, and obviously, when I returned to the UK for the second time in 2011, I think the trend had uh, um, sort of uh, gained momentum. And, well, the question of free speech on university campuses became a hot button issue. And even though I have always said I am on the left, I am progressive, I have never beaten around the bush as far as my views are concerned on controversial subjects, I believe I can fairly say that because of my upbringing, because of my political maturing, I've always been a true Democrat. Uh, I think there's no better system in the world at the moment. My view of the political class is not entirely cynical. And I've always enjoyed the rough and tumble of political debates, you know, whether that's uh, where my earliest parliamentary debates I observed when I was 12, 13 years old. And I remember marveling at the politicians, how they could stand up in parliament and criticize a government just like that later on in the UK. And then, of course, my favorite Colosseum is not in Rome, but actually in Canberra. Australian Parliament is just a, just a great place to, to observe, I must say. Now, university campuses are not parliaments, but they are not seminar rooms either. And I think political speech and political debate and speech giving in general always depends on context. Um, so let me start by telling you something about two sort of parallel universes when I came to uh, London in 2000. Now, obviously, I have always said that identity politics matters. I think it's part of on the left and on the right as well. I think there's in principle nothing wrong with identity politics unless you take it too far. And there's obviously a real danger of that happening, particularly, I must admit, in the progressive camp. And I obviously as someone who has grown up in, in, a, in a dictatorship until I was 11 years old. And that was uh, at least uh, as, a, as a slogan supposed to be a left wing dictatorship. It makes me always it makes my heart ache in a way when I when I see these developments, particularly on people who pride themselves on their democratic credentials. But democracy always goes two ways. And one of the things I've been brought up with is you, you don't, as far as humanly possible, I'm not perfect, and I must admit sometimes I find it very hard to do, but in general, at least, I try to remember two things. You don't question, question the legitimacy or the integrity of your opponent as a person, and you never question his motives. So the original uh, approach in, in public debate even though with people who fundamentally disagree with your worldview, is that you say they're a human being like I am and they're as honestly motivated as I am. So the common good is at their core. Now, that's not always true. But if you say that's not true for the other person, who's going to say that's true for yourself? 
You see, when Donald Trump was elected in 2016, I remember a lot of people immediately, um, even in my own circle of friends, immediately questioning his le legitimacy. And I always disagree with that. In fact, I disagree with that until today. Uh, I have no time for Donald Trump. I think he's an idiot. Um, he has a very restricted vocabulary and I think he doesn't deserve the White House. Now, but saying that at the same time, you cannot pick and choose when you grant legitimacy to a political leader. Uh, he, he has won by the same rules any other president was elected on. And I think you have to accept that he is a legitimate president. And that's what I have always said when I hear uh, people in the media, in the United States, elsewhere in the world, even in Germany, talking about potential impeachment and, you know, we're going to have to save uh, democracy and all that sort of stuff. Now, I always say the only way to get rid of Donald Trump is through the ballot box. If you start using impeachment on him, it's going to open the door either way in both directions. So I think that's a very, very, very dangerous route to pursue. And um, all I can say in that regard is obviously be, be wary of that. Now, democracy is messy. Uh, it doesn't always produce uh, the outcomes you envisage. You know, I remember, listeners, uh, when John Howard lost the 2007 election, remember Howard was Prime Minister of Australia from 1996 to 2007. He was a very, very astute politician. And in 2008, he was uh, speaking to a bunch of university students and, and well, it was, he was giving a speech somewhere at a university campus in America. And he was asked, uh, what do you think about your election laws? You know, and I, I, I think he said something which every true Democrat should do. He said, well, you know what, with politics, it's like that. Uh, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, and sometimes you lose. And sometimes we, as a progressive force, lose too. In fact... You put your head above the parapet and you put your views out there, but in the end of the day, you're going to have to accept the outcome either way. That's not easy. You know, I'm sitting here in my armchair and say all that. And I know in, in politics, in the heat of the moment, that's not easy. It's not easy for me either. Don't get me wrong. But that should at least be the uh, moral compass you work on. Otherwise, democracy cannot work and will not work either way. That's a problem. And that's why I'm saying to people who, you know, deny legitimacy to Donald Trump, be careful where that leads us, you know. So in 2000, um, when I came to university, obviously remember that um, I came from a university background that didn't really have much time for equal opportunities, let alone for disability. So for me, coming to the United Kingdom, coming to university, which really stressed and emphasized equal opportunities was a great thing. Now, as I told you in the last episode, uh, what was fantastic about this university is that from day one, I got my student support, uh, my support workers, my computers, etc., etc. Now, so disability, I thought, wouldn't matter. Now, interestingly enough, there is an institution at British universities which is called the Student Union. Now, the Student Union is an institution which provides support to students. It's entirely run by students for students. Great thing, too. But they are also the playground, the training ground for future politicians. 
And student unions are incredibly political. So you have students trying themselves out politically, which can also be a great thing. You know, you have all sorts of societies. Public speaking is emphasized, particularly what I really enjoyed was uh, the debating society. There is at English speaking universities or was and probably still is to some degree a, a much larger emphasis on public speaking than at, at continental or German universities, which was great as well. One thing I noticed, though, um, and I remember Queen Mary University of London did make up for that because it was intellectually incredibly stimulating environment in the seminar rooms outside. And I think the trend I'm describing here was just emerging. So um, at the time, what puzzled me was that emphasis on equal opportunities as a sort of not means to an end, but as a, as a sort of end in itself. Now, and here comes identity politics into play. Um, as I said before, I'm a disabled person, I'm blind. So obviously, for me, the question of identity politics at that early stage in my life was incredibly appealing. You know, for a while I thought, well, great, you know, that's a sort of issue you can engage in. But I noticed very quickly something really odd. There was already this so-called safe space movement which really got to me even at the time. Um, so now if you ask me what the safe space movement is, I'm not theorizing on it because I've never had the time to do that. And I, I can't really answer what exactly they envisage as safe spaces. Um, I just thought, what is all this about? I don't need safe spaces. You know, the idea was basically as a disabled person, as a migrant, as a Jew, as a Muslim, as a... I don't know, have you what, as a woman, you need safe spaces to be free, to articulate your views and to, you know, debate respectfully your views, etc., etc. Now, when you pursue identity politics, I think you allow, you, you, you are not just putting a label on yourself, you allow others to put a label on you. And believe me, it's very difficult to get rid of that label once you don't want it anymore. So the question is, and here I, I really agree with Lukianov and uh, Hyde, um, the question is, if you pursue that sort of identity politics as an end in itself, where does it end? Where's the end point? It's not a means to an end. Is it, what, if, if you engage at, in identity politics, let's say as a disabled person in that instance, um, you can take other identity-related categories and think about them, the question is, where does it end? So for me, the question was always safe spaces for what? You know, I don't need in politics or in society, I don't want safe spaces. I don't want people to be overly respectful just on the basis that I am a disabled person. It's not defining my identity anymore. So if people believe, you know, I'm a sort of, you know, if people come to me and say, well, you're this, you're that, it doesn't trigger anything. Um, it's something that I believe I can live with. You know, we live in a free country. People don't have to like me just because I'm blind or people don't have to ascribe certain attributes to me just on the basis that I'm blind, a white male, or have you what? What for? I think in that regard, it really comes down to your individual identity as, as an individual, but not as a member of, of a group. And remember all these groups, 
which are so frequently uh, mentioned when identity politics comes up as a subject of debate. They are all imagined communities. They don't exist as such. Now, there are certain issues which may link together underprivileged women. There are, there are certain issues that, that relate to people with disabilities. But remember, the same socioeconomic differences remain, even with, amongst disabled people. I mean, you've got disabled people who are incredibly privileged, a very tiny few, but you do. You have people who have been less lucky than I have been, and they're probably going to have a very different outlook on disability politics or, uh, you know, politics in general. So the point I'm making, and I would be happy to debate about politics in any setting whenever that's appropriate, whenever somebody wants me to, to do that. Um, I don't need safe spaces. Now, I found this safe space movement at the time very worrying indeed. And I remember then when I, when I returned to Germany, uh, this uh, disability coordinator, which was more as a sort of university advocate uh, rather than a true disability, <laughs> disability coordinator, I remember him saying very early on to me, he said, um, well, you, you know, we're going to have to sensitize people uh, toward your needs. And I was like, you know, um, give me the resources I need. Just give me my student support workers and, and, and my computer or my braille display so I can start getting my head around Russian at the time. So the question is, you know, it, it can become an alibi as well. Political correctness, uh, which I do not dispute in principle, but I think there are limits to it and it can be dangerous as well. And I think it can become an alibi for society not to do anything. You know, he said, well, we're going to have to sensitize people to what, you, uh, to what you need. So I thought to myself, well, I don't care how sensitive people are to me as a person. I don't care whether people like me. People don't have to be nice to me. Just give me the resources uh, to study and everything else. Um, you know, I don't need people to be. This is, let, me, let me give you another example, dear listeners, in that regard. That's a very interesting thing which I observed as well. At German universities at the time, I don't know what the situation is today. I may find out in October because I'm, I'm wanting to go to, back to university. So, but that's for another time. Um, in Germany, as a disabled person, as a blind person, for instance, you can go, you can literally apply for every subject, uh, no matter what the entrance criteria are. So if you as a blind person after your German abitur say I've got a 3.0 and you're going to apply for a subject like law or like um, 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 psychology, have you what, um, you can get in under special provisions. Not because you, you've got the required uh, marks at your German abitur because you're disabled. But then when you come to the university, the university don't necessarily provide for you. They're going to send you back to the social security office to get yourself sorted out. So I think, but, well, you could argue, well, they are inclusive. You know, they give you that sort of entrance, um, entrance to their university institutions. Why? Uh, that's something I've never understood. I think it's much more important to say you're going to have to have the same qualification like anybody else. But when you get in, then we're going to provide for your support. Now, why, why does someone who is blind with 3.0 in his abitur be allowed to study at a subject where other non-disabled people 
have to have a 1.2, 1.3 or 1.4 in the Abitur. It's, it's an alibi function. You know, it, it suggests that we are sort of inclusive, more inclusive than we actually are. It's the same with this famous idea or this famous sort of uh, time extension you get for your exams, which obviously may be necessary. But for me, for instance, typing on a computer in, in the humanities, when I got a question in my law exam or in my uh, politics exam, I was much quicker than my sighted uh, uh, seminar participants because I typed on a computer. They did handwriting and they said, well, you just took half the time than they. How can that be? And I said, well, guys, I type on a computer, but you've got much more time. Well, I don't need it. Just give me the resources I need to study and leave out all that nonsense that is not required. You know, so I think it's legitimate to say who really needs that extra time should get it. But that's not that's not inclusiveness in itself. Um, so and that's where I think identity politics and, and, and political correctness and all that sort of wishy-washy stuff surrounding it really uh, is, is very negative uh, because it doesn't really help. In the end, it's all a question of resources. And that's what it boils down to. And not whether you get 50% more time, particularly if you have the luxury of typing on a computer uh, and uh, the other students don't. So, or you get in on less qualifications than somebody else, which is something I, until this very day, cannot comprehend. That's very different in the UK, by the way. In the UK, you're going to have to have the same marks, as I found out to my uh, own uh, detriment in 2004, with the 2-2, you don't get immediately into a master's degree. Your disability doesn't matter at all. It didn't even come up. That's the way the world works. And I think, in hindsight, I mean, I wasn't happy at the time, but in hindsight, I think it's absolutely correct. You know, once you're in there, they should provide. You know, and that's got nothing to do with how people approach you as an individual. That is indeed an issue that, that is, uh, has to be solved for a group with special needs. So... This, when I came back to Sheffield, obviously, and I observed student politics only from afar. I mean, I had some contact to the students' union, not a lot, but there was a lot about interfaith uh, uh, roundtables and all that sort of stuff. And I thought to myself, well, that's all great. But if you discuss for serious conflicts like, let's say, Palestine, Israel, and I'm not ta not taking sides. My side is very clear on that one. I've I've written on my blog about that. Everybody knows where I, I'm I'm standing on this issue. But no matter whether you're a Zionist, you're non-Zionist, whether you're you're sort of fan of Israel for whatever reason or you're not, the point for me is these are conflicts that need to be debated in the public arena without uh, having the requirement to be incredibly nice to each other. Remember, if you're not in a seminar, if you're in the public arena, democracy is, and that was not different in Athens, that was the same in the Roman Republic. That's always been the case. Whenever you are a, um, whenever you articulate yourself in public, you have a right to be polemic, you know, and you have a right to be, um, you have to, you have a right to, you know, poignantly articulate your views. Now, shades of gray is good, 
But if you debate people, sometimes you get, you're going to have to put things in black and white, just for argument's sake. It always depends where you speak and where you are. Um, if you if you give a speech in the Australian Parliament, you're going to be different rather than as if you were sitting around a table with your advisors and civil servants, of course, you know. But that's that's democracy. Democracy is messy. And I think what Lukianov and Hyde observe rightly is that the current student generation, and mind you, exceptions uh, prove the rule, uh, that the current uh, generation of students um, in our universities has a tendency to not even engage in true debates anymore. Now, the phenomena of echo chambers. Now, by the way, as the two point out rightly, echo chambers is not just a problem of social media. Now, social media reinforces um, echo chambers, but the other issue which comes into play here is hegemonity, hegemonious structures of communities. So you have people living in cosmopolitan, metropolitan areas, which have very similar views. They do not have, they don't feel the need anymore to engage in other, with other people on the other side of the political divide. And then you have a concentrated a number of people living in the rural areas, which take exactly the opposite view. Now, and this trend reinforced by social media and the echo chamber of the social media obviously leads to such polariz polarization in our society that it may well uh, become a serious, serious threat to democracy. Now, interestingly enough, there have been um, social scientists um, talking about this long ago, remember Susan George uh, talking about soft authoritarianism in a bit of a different context in the 1990s, but comes very close to our reality. Remember uh, uh, political scientist Stanner who talks about authoritarian dynamics and authoritarian dynamics is a very interesting concept as well, which Lukianov and Hyde, by the way, uh, recommend as reading as well. I'm going to put a few YouTube uh, links on my blog um, on that subject. They say, or she says, that basically um, authoritarianism is not an end. It's not an end point. It's not a sort of personality, as it were. It's a dynamic, a social dynamic in society. That is to say you have a critical mass of people who get triggered by certain events. Now, whether you take the issue of migration in, in, in the States, for instance, whether you, you know, they get triggered on social media, particularly on social media. And if you reach a certain mass, a critical mass of people who get triggered by certain subjects, um, you will have them not being able to bridge any political divide. And if that reaches, let's say, 30% of the population, you've got a problem. You've got a problem like Trump. So, and obviously, this reluctance to not just engage in, in reasonable debate, but also have a love for it, have a love for the rough and tumble and the messiness of democracy, which I do, um, is 
due to a certain to to certain factors like for instance fragility now they talk about a generation that is is has grown up on trauma you know the idea that they um have to be protected first by their parents then by their universities and the question they pose rightly so is from what you know i mean life is messy things do happen um but that's a, that that comes with freedom you know and the question obviously is is there really more trauma being caused uh today now is it is it that people especially young people young girls for instance seek uh treatment much more red, readily than 20 30 years ago so that that's an open question and they remain very speculative in answering that question now i'm not a psychologist i'm just a reader of that book and so i i have no answer to that question either but these are the questions they are posing and for me as i said for me it's very important to remember that democracy in its current form for all its flaws for all the problems we have is still the best system we've got and any cynical approach to that doesn't really bring us forward um I have a clear world view. Now some may say I'm trying to whitewash my own positions or to compromise them. I'm not, but I'm just saying it's my position and if I ever happen to be in the public arena, I'm going to have to accept that there are many other positions and they have a right to be articulated in the same way I expect my own positions to be heard. Um the outcome is in the end decided um either by the electorate or by political dynamics. you name it but that's that's a price of democracy as i said as john howard famously said sometimes you win sometimes you lose i would say very often you lose and sometimes luckily you win the argument now this book is a book i highly recommend to you it's a good read it's very informative and even though if you don't necessarily subscribe to the views of lukianov and hyde I don't subscribe to their views entirely. They are coming from a more center-right perspective than I do, so their criticism for me is nonetheless largely valid. Um, you know, I I remember maybe before I finish this segment, just one thing. I remember a conversation I had with a German student uh, two years, uh, three years ago. She was a law student. She was a she was a, a German girl, I think from. I grew up in Germany from Lebanon originally and she was a law student and um very nice very very nice woman and then we talked about you know briefly about Zionism and oh she said well you know everybody should have it their way and I thought well that's an interesting thing to say because this typical lawyer's talk at that young age already just you know make no mistake just shy away from any conflict Well, there's no such thing. If you have people living in the same area fighting for the same land, it's got to be solved. You can't solve it by saying, "Well, anybody should have it their way." You know, I mean, it's just a ludicrous answer to give, and that's exactly what I think they mean, or what I mean, or at least I read into it. It this is this idea of being afraid to to um of of being afraid to engage in any political conflict, uh, for the sake of what? For the sake of peace? What sort of peace? you know no matter how you approach any conflict any political issue 
um, you're going to have to do it in, in a way that articulates a clear position. Whether that position in the end will get my majority support is another question. But I think this, this sort of uh, loyally answer, well, everybody should have it their own way. And, you know, uh, was for me sort of eye-opener. And I thought, well, yeah, that trend obviously has made it to German campuses as well. So there you go. That was all for that moment about Lukianov and Hyde. By the way, um, if I haven't mentioned it before, um, uh, Greg Lukianov is the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. And Jonathan Hyde is a social psychologist and a professor for ethical leadership at New York University's Stern School for Business. And they obviously... Uh, needless to, to say, come to that topic from a psycho, psychological um, perspective. Now, that's a book you must read. Rome is a city laden with history. Whether you go back to one brother killing the other, a first, or, well, not the first, but a huge empire, slavery, gladiator fights, and of course, then later on the papacy, the Vatican, etc., etc. I could go on and on and on. Some would rather close their eyes to a crime that took place in 1975. Two teenagers were kidnapped and brutally uh, tortured. One of them died, the other one survived, two girls. And one Italian author and writer has stirred up quite a bit of uproar in the country and possibly abroad by publishing a really interesting book on that very subject. Um, his name is uh, Edoardo Albinati. He's a very famous Italian writer, widely publicized. He has been uh, working um, in Afghanistan for a bit uh, for the UN Refugee Agency. He is teaching prisoners at a prison in Rome, etc., etc., etc. So he's a very, very colorful man, and he has published that very book, which I must say I'm currently still making my way through. It's epic, it's huge, and it, well, requires a lot of you, dear reader. So if you get that book, make sure you're going to have plenty of time on your hands. It's not an easy read. So what is he doing, and what makes this book worth mentioning here? Now, this crime we are talking about took place more than 40 years ago. And a lot has been written, has been said, has been argued about what happened in 1975. Now, this book by Albinati is an autobiographical uh, novel, semi-autobiographical novel, if you will. It combines, and that's very interesting in, in stylistic terms, it combines various forms of writing. So it has elements of reporting, of essay writing, of philosophizing, everything you would be asking for. And that obviously makes a book very difficult to digest. Nonetheless, he chooses a very unique take on what happened at the time. First of all, it's about him. It's about autobiography in the sense that he uh, attended the Catholic school from which the two criminals perpetrating uh, the crime actually came. There were actually three. I think the third one hasn't been caught until this very day. 
but this remains a subject that is there simmering beneath the surface. So he dedicates the book rather to exploring Italian society at the time. And I dare say it has a lot of lessons for the future. Um, it talks obviously about the problems with Catholic upbringing in general, but it also, and that's particularly for me very interesting, as you know, as someone that has a very ambiguous uh, relationship to the bourgeoisie, even though I know it's a very broad term, it's a laden term, it's a political term as well. So in terms of terminology, I don't want to get into that here, but he uncovers, criticizes and unmasks the Italian petty bourgeoisie, which he believes more than anything else is responsible for nurturing a climate in which such a crime could happen. So he talks about his own upbringing, the relationship of uh, the obviously religious upbringing to sex. Um, he talks about the petty bourgeoisie, its materialism, its jealousies, its various human shortcomings. He manages to do that always in a way that is not coming from a morally superior perspective. And that's what I find most interesting about this book. He is not going into this narrative with a raised finger. He doesn't point fingers at others. He's taking a very, very reflective view of himself. And thus, I think, in a way, endears himself to the reader as well. He paints a portrait that makes the, well, let's call it human shortcomings of the petty bourgeoisie almost excusable, understandable to say the least. Understandable is maybe the better term. Um, and he talks about a country that is still torn between its religious sort of connotations and then the bourgeois the petty bourgeoisie and its economic values. Now, it's a very interesting book. I want to keep that short because it's such a lengthy read that I must say I feel almost a bit apologetic for recommending this book, but it's really worth the time. But what I must say, though, is take the time to really study it carefully and then think about the, if you want to call it bourgeoisie, petty bourgeoisie, if you want to call it just human behavior, you name it, Think about what climate we are living in today, because to be honest, I don't think it's that different at all. Now, even if you take religion or, you know, Catholicism out of the equation, I think it's still there still remains a picture in your head, sort of uneasy feeling of living in a society, in an environment where something like that can always happen. So, and that's, I know it's very short, but that's all I'm going to say to you about this book. Now, the book is written by Edward Albinati, and you find it, for instance, on the iBook store. I would definitely purchase it if I were you. I'm reading it currently. I've, I've, I'm almost through with it. So if something more comes up and occurs to me that is worth reflecting on, I will definitely um, raise this matter again in this podcast. The book is called 
the Catholic Church, uh, Catholic school, the Catholic school. Now in German it's called die katholische Schule and I read it at present in German. I haven't found the any English translation of the book. So it may well be that you have to read in Italian or in German. I'm not sure that's out there in English. I'm pretty sure it should be, but as I said, I haven't, I haven't been able to find it and I recommend it to you. And when I come back, we're going to talk a bit more in detail about surveillance capitalism and Shoshana Zuboff's book on that, on that issue. Big data, the arrogance of Silicon Valley. That's a promised land we either live in already or we are in the way of reaching very soon. My own experience with Facebook, Google, etc., etc. Of course, I'm going to talk about that as well. And the book I want to recommend in this last and final segment of the show for this week is Shoshana Zuboff's Surveillance Capitalism, uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Shoshana Zuboff is teaching at the um, Harvard University um, and is a prolific writer who has done plenty of very good uh, work on the question of surveillance capitalism and how we use or better don't use modern technology. Uh, she's written articles in the German paper FAZ and uh, she has been interviewed on a podcast which I listened to recently. The first person podcast by Foreign Policy Magazine, which I'm going to link on my blog as well. Now, Shoshana Zuboff is basically putting in scientific terms, which I think a lot of people feel instinctively, that something has gone badly wrong with our new digital or in our new digital age with the technology we are using. It's all primarily about big data. Big data has become what during the Industrial Revolution and afterwards was mass labor. So that's a sort of parallel she develops. To put it in, in a nutshell, she's also very critical of Facebook, Google and their ilk, as I am, by the way. I think surveillance capitalism is a huge problem. And it is a shame that the public is not ready yet to really stand up to surveillance capitalism because it's complicated. It was very complicated to uh, develop proper political mechanisms to, uh, for the emerging labor movement in the 19th century. And I think we are in a very similar process when it comes to surveillance capitalism and what that means for us as citizens and how we ensure that democratic either nation states or other geopolitical entities which are still to or yet which are yet to emerge will tackle those uh, those problems now, i'm not entirely sure whether we should write off the nation state now i think we are at a very early point in that process i mean remember the internet the digital revolution as it were is maybe 20 years old since it started becoming a mass uh, product available for the masses I mean, the internet was around before, a bit longer than that, but, you know, smartphones, etc., etc., huge, big business, that all came around, started 20 years ago. Now, that's nothing in any given historical context. Nonetheless, we must be vigilant. And 
I'm gonna tell you at this stage, I've, I've sort of raised that subject on my blog a couple of times before. I'm gonna tell you something about my own experiences with particularly Facebook and Twitter. Um, now, obviously, I have been a very, very strong and daily user of Twitter and Facebook, particularly Facebook. I loved it. Um, when a friend of mine told me in 2008 that there's something called Facebook, I subscribed to it. And when the iPhone came along and became available for me too, um, I started using Facebook properly really in 2011. Uh, until that is the end of last year. Now, a lot of people have asked me in my circle of friends, which is not very big anyways, but a lot of people have, some people kept asking me why I've quit Facebook because a lot of people don't, despite all the stuff that's going on with the company, uh, but that's not just Facebook, that's Twitter, that's Google. Um, they don't seem to be ready to give it up. And giving up Facebook is not easy. I think Facebook has the has some sort of addictive potential. Maybe not addictive in a medical sense. I'm not denying, denying that. Psychologists are arguing back and forth on that question. But I think it has addictive potential. Psychologically, definitely. That's, no, that's not a reason to hate it. That's not a reason to get upset about it. That's just a fact, as many other things in life do, actually. Um, so I used Facebook particularly as a political platform, but also as a sort of biographical tool. And I must readily confess, I thought that when I started Facebook, um, it would sort of, especially as a disabled person, facilitate my way into employment. I believe that if people see that I can write, I can work, I can do research, it would be much easier to uh, potentially attract uh, human resources departments or employee um, employers uh, to give me a go. Now, that obviously never materialized for some odd reason, but uh, despite all that, I kept using it for quite some time until my own perception of Facebook started shifting somewhat, and that was not a straight process. That took time. That was also a bit of zigzagging around because even for me, I, I for quite some time, despite all the scandals, whether we talk about Cambridge Analytica or any other scandal relating to Facebook, I wasn't quite ready to give it up. Um, remember for seven years, I had all my data on it. You know, there were photographs, there were uh, notes on politics, all that sort of stuff. Um, but I realized not just in the Trumpian age, but also I had sort of been sort of feeling kept creeping in that, you know, there's something wrong. And that was obviously on a on a political uh, in terms of uh, politics, that was obviously Facebook's arrogance, Twitter's arrogance, its inability to, you know, um, handle our data properly. I didn't want to become a product. I didn't want to become a entity for them to be exploited. That was one reason. So politically for me, it was pretty clear it's a bad thing to do. And I thought, you know, I can bang on about Facebook as long as I like. If I don't quit, who's going to believe me? People will turn around and say, well, yeah, you know, you keep banging on and bashing Facebook, but you're still on there. Um, so for me, it was basically a question of, you know, Put your, put your money where your mouth is, basically. So shut it down. 
The second reason was for me though that it didn't give me anything content-wise. I still had political uh, pages I subscribed to, but with a good RSS reader, like in the good old days of the internet, I can get all that information. I don't need Facebook as a man in the middle. Well, I switch on my RSS reader, it's going to uh, subscribe to all my feeds and it's going to uh, give me the newest contact, uh, content on various blogs and newspaper pages within a few minutes, basically. So the question even on that was, A, why do I need Facebook for that? And B, why do I need an algorithm which I have no control over to filter my newsfeed? So what's coming first, what's coming last? I don't know. It's not very transparent. Uh, that was one reason. The other reason as well was that I didn't feel friends are friends. Now, all the contact I had on Facebook was basically useless. Uh, the people I wrote to, a lot of them were very, I mean, I, I knew them from Heidelberg days, from Sheffield days. But, you know, the, the sort of connection, the human connection cannot be replaced by a social media platform. Um, I think you can probably use it for business or business contacts, whatever, but on a personal level, it does make up for not being in touch properly. And also with the messaging services, um, it's much easier to communicate uh, with people on Signal or Threema or Silent Phone or that sort of, um, that sort of uh, um, services. Now, WhatsApp obviously is part of Facebook, so I try to not use it as much as I can. But I must admit uh, to you, dear listeners, to my everlasting shame, I still use WhatsApp because a lot of people are just not ready to give it up either. Uh, why I don't understand, because there are so much better services out there, much more secure services. Um, so I find it very hard to comprehend why people stick to, to WhatsApp. Uh, but I'll come to that in a minute. Now, that's that's one thing with Facebook and Twitter. It didn't give me anything politically. It didn't give me anything in terms of human capital. Um, the so-called friends were no friends. Uh, communication was kept to a minimum. It was without any meaning. It didn't have any meaning for me. It was just basically uh, useless uh, images or whatever, you know, you can be lucky if you get a message where people can still write two or three sentences uh, properly these days. I admit I'm polemicizing a bit here, but it's still pretty much close to the truth, I think. Now, that was the reason for me to shut down Facebook and Twitter as well. Um, by the way, there's a very interesting service I recommend as a sort of alternative as a microblogging service to Twitter particularly, it's called Mastodon. So if you want to find me, go to Mastodon, which is M-A-S-T-O-D-O-N dot social and look for Thrillseeker1978. So Mastodon is a software which basically allows anybody who, everybody who wants to do that can run a server. And the server can be, well, it's a sort of federated structure. So you'll find the details on the Mastodon side, on the Mastodon.social side. It's a decentralized, non-commercial, um, federated structure of various servers working together. And each server has its own unique identity. 
So what the server does, what subject it's, it, it allows, it's all up to the users. And it doesn't deal in data, it can't be sold. It's a very good alternative to Facebook and Twitter. To Twitter more than Facebook, but uh, to Twitter it's a, it's, it's, it's a f superb alternative. And I still use Mastodon once in a while and I greatly recommend it. Uh, it's a shame that it's not hasn't really made it uh, to the top, but I'm still hopeful that the Twitters and Facebooks of our times will eventually uh, fall, and I'm sure they will. Um, so that's uh, mastodon.social, thrillseeker1978, more you find on my blog, but I'm gonna, just going to take you to another issue, and that's obviously the entire question of surveillance capitalism and the connection between big business and the state. Um, it is certainly true that the uh, big internet companies have gained an extraordinary amount of control over our lives. Um, that has nothing to do with the good old days of the internet um, in the end of the 90s or in the early 2000s. Now, interestingly enough, Shoshana, Shoshana Zuboff says that, you know, when Google was confronted with um, a failing business model, and the question is what to do in order to generate capital. Um, Google had alternatives. And she talks about that in her book and she talks about that on that podcast I'm going to link on my blog. Uh, that's a very interesting issue as well. So it wasn't a natural choice for Google to make. There were other alternatives they could have uh, explored. Now, they realized very quickly that gathering data selling data, advert doing advertisement, doing, doing advertising on that basis is a goldmine, basically. And that was the beginning of the trend towards surveillance capitalism, as she calls it. So that's a problem. And I think civil society is not quite ready yet to effectively oppose it. We see a movement slowly emerging, slowly growing, uh, th that will eventually, I think, become a seri serious threat to the current beneficiaries of surveillance capitalism. I think as a, as a concept, surveillance capitalism is not durable, it will not endure, and it will be finished politically at some stage further down the road. The question is how soon that goes, whether it can be done within current institutions, whether our political system will be responsive enough to do that, or it will eventually have to be some sort of revolution again. And I'm not saying that lightly. I'm not a great fan of revolutions, whatever revolution means in that context. But I think the question is a legitimate one. In any age you had that, that brought massive economic change, and that is maybe the, the most profound economic change humanity has ever seen. I mean, the idea that our political structure in its current form will in the long term, I'm not talking about tomorrow, but will in the long term suffice to manage this new economy uh, is, is rather doubtful. That's why I say also that keeping a close eye on emerging social movements on the left, on the right, is extremely essential. 
they may be the incubator of truly a new class, perhaps a new economic class, new political class, new movements, which I think will have potential revolutionary potential one day. Not yet. Uh, there's no clear direction in that um, in which uh, that process will will take us, but it will be an ongoing interesting spectacle to watch. Um, as you know, as I pointed out a couple of times before, I don't believe in determinism when it comes to historical processes and events. So I'm not saying the nation state or current political structure should be written off especially not when it comes to solving day-to-day -day issues. But what you can see already, whether we talk about the um, e-privacy um, directive coming out of the European Union or any other legislation that deals with uh, this sort of new surveillance capitalism technology, um, it, it is pretty, it, it tries to manage a new te uh, technology by employing old means. Means that were suitable for the industrial age, but I don't think will suffice in the age of surveillance capitalism. Now, by the way, I'm not a great believer in uh, getting the state to split up Facebook or Twitter or Google. Now, the reason for that is very simple. I have no time for Facebook, Twitter, and Google, but the problem with that is it doesn't effectively finish off their business model. So you can have suddenly three Facebooks, you can have three Twitters or three Googles. So fine, what? They still gonna employ the same mechanisms to enrich themselves. So the problem for me is the business model. It's not a problem with social media. Now, some people have po posed that question to me a couple of times. What's your problem with social media? I have no problem with social media in, this, in the sen true sense of the word. Social media, social media is a great thing. You know, if you can uh, exchange views and you've got a public arena where to debate as a Democrat with a small d, well, fantastic. There's n nothing better in the world, especially for me with my cosmopolitan background. I think it's great. You know, I can talk to someone in, in, in I don't know, uh, wherever in the world about their politics and their culture and society, etc., etc. I don't even need to be there physically, which was very different 10, 15 years ago. Now, that's great. The problem I've got with social media is a business model. It's an algorithm you have no control over. You will have, no matter what legislation is being put in place, you will have no effective control over your data. Because the legislation that is being put in place, take Europe with its um, uh, privacy laws, which, are, which have taken effect, are meant to take effect further down the road, they will be so complicated that for an ordinary citizen, it's going to be more or less impossible to comprehend it. And companies in a capitalist society will always be drawn to exploit that. So I believe this idea of um, putting laws into effect and they will somehow solve the problem, it's... Um, a misnomer. It's not going to happen. So now the next question would be, what's the perfect answer? Well, I have none. All I can say is that I share Shoshana Zuboff's optimism that surveillance capitalism can be fought and will be fought by civil society. It will not be fought effectively by the political system.
and the future of our current political elites and our political system will depend on one question alone, and that's their responsiveness to that emerging new social movement or these emerging new social movements, if you will. If they can't handle that on a structural level, they are doomed for failure. And the next revolution in whatever form, and that doesn't have to mean progress, can be turning the clock back, but the next revolutionary situation will arise in decades to come. And uh, couple that with global warming, with all the other uh, ecological problems, environmental issues we have currently going on, uh, with rising levels of inequality, massively rising levels of inequality within nation states, not between nation states, but within nation states, it will lead to a very explos explosive uh, situation down the track. And that doesn't necessarily mean progress it can go in the opposite direction. Look at the current uh, wave of populism and nationalism. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to take us forward. So I still hope that the current political system will manage to be responsive enough to nip that thing, surveillance capitalism, in the bud as soon as possible. Uh, whether that's going to happen, I, I, for the moment, I share, I force myself to share Zuboff's optimism. I'm not entirely convinced by it, but then that's all you can do as an activist. You can always try, you can only try to be optimistic and do what you can during your lifetime. Uh, because the processes we, we talk about here, they're going to outlast all of us. And that's why I think we've got such an immense respons responsibility as, as, as a active, politically active generation to act. It's difficult though. You're going to have to accept also that a lot of these issues cannot be solved on a national level anymore. And that makes it even for those parts within the political or those parts of the political elites that genuinely have grasped the problem, very difficult to act effectively. And that's why for me the question is, will in the long term uh, the nation state, will it be a durable institution? Will it manage to um, cater to people's expectations? And will it be responsive enough to, even in partnership with other nation states, even in supranational or um, international institutions, will it be able to fight that? Will it regain the upper hand in shaping our lives as democratically le legitimate democratically legitimized actors within the international arena. I have grave doubts. Um, what, what sort of structures might be more suitable to do that? I don't know. There might be a trend uh, where we're going to reverse back to uh, even smaller units, more isolated politics. Perhaps we have a more global take on on politics one day. I don't know what will be the outcome. That's going to be a long, long process. That's why I would say the current resurgence of nationalism and populism is worrisome, 
but it's not the end of the world and it's not the end it's it's not the final outcome of all that's happening around us it may just be a flux that may just be one day a footnote of a much broader uh, historical development which we probably all don't understand why well, I don't um, so we will see where that takes us what I can tell you is that uh, Shoshana Zuboff has written a great book and I have until this very day after switching off Facebook and Twitter in December I have had no regrets about doing so there's one other aspect I wanted to raise in that regard, and that's what worries me a bit. Uh, I have written about that shortly before leaving Facebook, but also I think I've mentioned it on my blog a couple of times, and that's not just surveillance capitalism from our from global companies. I think that's the most dangerous part, but I think there could be potentially an uh, unholy alliance between the deep state, as it were, and high tech. Um, publicly, of course, they try to behave in a very antagonistic way. And that's probably an honest reflection of the current situation. But look, once we get to a situation where rising inequality, pressing environmental issues, um, inequality of wealth, etc., etc., all these things will lead to more tensions within nation states and internationally. I am convinced that the global big companies like Apple, Google, Samsung, Facebook, Twitter, put them all in one basket, will have no difficulty selling us down the river. If they're economic interests are protected, they will allow the state to build a profound and massive surveillance apparatus, even in the Western world. I wouldn't rule that out. Um, that could happen. It could happen. It doesn't have to happen, but it's very likely. Such a situation. Now, take the uh, ludicrous measures taken in Australia, because they are seriously trying to persuade the public that um, to fight terrorism, it's absolutely essential that the state is going to have the powers to intercept our messages in services using end-to-end -end encryptions, like end-to-end uh, -end encryption, like WhatsApp, Signal, uh, Threema, or you name it. You know, which is, is just a small thing. And if this sort of thing is done in, in an accountable uh, manner, I, I wouldn't necessarily have such a such a problem with it. But especially if you look at the example in Australia, it's there's literally no proper accountability in the law. I think it's very dangerous because it will probably affect one day the entire infrastructure of the Internet as we know it. And also, once these backdoors, and even if you talk about the ghost or, you know, in, in the encryption debate where it's coming out of, GCHQ in the UK, all if if you talk about all that, it 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 means in the end backdoors. It's very simple. Now I accept that obviously the state, if democratically controlled, um, must have adequate means to protect its citizens. But the idea that you that is essential for our society to ensure that people can be or people's communication can be monitored um, in end-to-end um, -end encryption services is just 
absurd. I mean, remember that we like to forget in the Western world that when we talk about terrorism, we talk about a danger that is, is in context not a significant one. Yes, terrorist attacks happen. They happen in Berlin, they happen in Paris, they happen in London, etc. It's all true. But statistically, and I know this doesn't matter if you talk about your own feelings of insecurity, but statistically you're more likely to be killed in a car accident or by, to be hit by lightning than being killed by a terrorist attack in, in Western Europe. Now, many people don't want to hear it, but think about it. This is the excuse that is being used to sacrifice our liberties. Um, if it concerns you, if it, if it happens to oneself, of course, uh, if you still can, can complain after the deed, um, uh, if it happens to you, then of, of course it's a tragedy. But so it's a tragedy if somebody dies in a car accident or is, is uh, killed in any other regard. So I think we're going to have to, and I know this is politically a very tough message to sell, um, but we're going to have to accept that in a free society, and the freer our society is, the less secure we are. Now, that's a sacrifice I am prepared to make. That's a sacrifice maybe you are not prepared to make, and that's legitimate. That may be your view. Now, it's not my view. My view is I would rather live with a bit more danger around me, but live a free life than living in a sort of cocoon and a sort of, you know, being more secure. I mean, we were pretty secure in East Germany. There was not a lot of crime, really, but, you know, it wasn't a free society. Now, I am ready to embrace opportunity, but risk as well. For me, it's part and parcel of the same. It's one of the same side of the coin, really. You know, it's, 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 uh, that's what freedom means. And that's why I'm not ready to accept the argument that for my security, the state has to be able to be in that position. And I must say, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not saying it is going to happen. But if someone had told me 10 years ago the NSA is spying on all of us in, in one way or the other, and even if that just applied to metadata, then I would have said, well, you, you're quite a conspiracy theorist. Well, as it turned out, these people were spot on, thanks to Edward Snowden. So after Snowden, how, how could I trust... ASIO or any other security agency in the Western world not to engage in the same practices again if they don't already do so, um, particularly when it comes to metadata. By the way, if you listen to security experts in the field, they would tell you that um, for them very often um, metadata is more important than the content of communication. So why do you need that law in Australia? Why do you need these uh, really vague um, provisions in the investigative in the um, British law, the Investigatory uh, Powers Act? I think it's called. I haven't got it in front of me, but I think something along those lines. So for me, it does make sense. And I find it extraordinary that the Australian media in particular is so silent on that issue. I find that appalling. I cannot understand it. There should be an outcry of massive proportion. Nothing. And that all under the vague uh, assertion by the security apparatus 
that they needed to fight terrorism. What terrorism? How many terrorist attacks have we had in Australia? One, two, three? I don't know. It's not worth counting, really. Yeah, they happened. What happened in Melbourne was terrible, but still, you know. Tell me tomorrow uh, how many people died in the whole country in car accidents. You know, how many criminal um, small things, uh, murders were committed throughout the day. It's probably more than that. But this is this is just a, a it's just a completely loony um, assertion by the state, and it's hard to comprehend if you keep your eyes open and and you're not bamboozled by propaganda day in day out. It's hard to comprehend why that is, and to be honest, you know. When I listen to the debates, the few debates, there weren't many in Australia, but if you listen to a few debates on that issue, uh, journalists always refer to, but the security establishment says, so what? The security establishment did a lot of crap over the years. You know, They took us to Iraq, took the United States to, into Iraq. They have been, um, they have been responsible for uh, persuading politicians to wage an endless war in Afghanistan. Uh, they have uh, coaxed politicians into waging war in Yemen. I mean, the truth, now they're sort of trying to orchestrate a coup in Venezuela. I mean, the point is the security apparatus can't teach us anything at all. Um, it's, it's our job as politicians or journalists to keep our, our eyes open. And the complicity of the media is mind-boggling to me. Have they learned nothing from the Snowden revelations? Absolutely nothing. And even if you've got an infrastructure of accountability in place in those democratic states in the UK and Australia, that may not remain the case. You don't know. That may not remain the case. And even ha if, if you have civically minded people within the security establishment, which I'm sure there are many, there will be bad apples and they can do an awful lot of harm. And I tell you one thing, if it happens, if technology, if push comes to shove, big money and data will strike an alliance with the state to defend the privileges of that new surveillance capitalist economy. So yes, it is primarily the danger in my view are big companies and big data, but we shouldn't write off the the deep state, as it were, completely. It remains a danger. And I think civil society has a lot to do on that front too. Uh, some have understood it. There is great work out there by the Electronic Freedom Foundation in the States, for example. But overall, I think citizens are far too ready to buy into that narrative of we are protecting you from terrorism. Well, and by the way, I don't want to be overly protective from terrorism. If it happens, it happens. If I get on a plane and the plane crashes, so it happens. You cannot go through life with the illusion of total security. It's never going to happen unless you completely want to sacrifice more and more freedom and choice. And I'm not ready to make that sacrifice. If you are, well, that's fine. You know, then vote for the right political parties that support your views. But for me, it's not an option. Um, and I think we should bear that in mind. So all in all, 
This is surveillance capitalism is an issue that I think matters greatly and it will keep us occupied politically for quite some time to come. And I'm really curious in the long term what social movements will have what impact on the debate and whether or not our political structures will suffice to manage that new order and tame it, which I hope will happen. Because after all, we all embrace technology and technology in itself is a good thing. And finishing off this segment and the show for this week, remember one thing. The Internet is so much more than just Facebook and Twitter and Google. You know, there are plenty of alternatives out there. And you can start, as I said, by using good messaging services that are not engaging in data gathering and data selling. I always say use Signal, use Threema, use Silent Phone. Even on Silent Phone, you have to pay a little fee. It's a business, but it's an honest business. Um, stop using WhatsApp and in my view, stop using Facebook and Twitter. Now, Google is a bit more complicated. I admit that, but, um, you know, even there are alternatives around. It takes a bit of time, but it's worth it. And we can all start at least making a small um, contribution to the debate in our own behavior. And then obviously try to uh, ratchet up that pressure from below to get our political elites to act uh, decisively in their regard. So, dear listeners, Gladys Potties, that's what I'm going to leave you with this week. I hope you have a lovely Monday and I wish you a great rest of the week. Keep reading, keep listening, and more than anything else, keep thinking. Bye-bye. <laughs>